Hello, and welcome to episode 79 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thanks for listening in today. And let me start out with a factoid. Every day, and let me repeat those two words, every day, data from over 70 clinical trials and 11 systematic reviews are published. How in the world are clinicians and hospital systems expected to keep up with that data to be sure they are delivering the best care for their patients? And how are med tech companies to know how they fit in? To help us understand this huge issue is our guest, Jonathan Chen, MD, PhD, Assistant Professor of the Stanford Department of Medicine and the Center for Biomedical Informatics. Jonathan will help us out in this second episode related to artificial intelligence in medicine and medtech. He is one of a new and unusual breed of clinicians that has extensive education and training in medicine and computer sciences and informatics. I'm calling this episode Foundation of Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare and MedTech because we spend a lot of time talking about the key foundational elements for artificial intelligence and where it may make the biggest difference, especially related to our scarcest resource in medicine today. And that scarce resource is trained healthcare professionals. We will explore the difference between bioinformatics and medical informatics, recommender algorithms, the iron triangle of healthcare, the decaying relevance of clinical data, the wisdom of the crowd or the tyranny of the mob, what can be done with the masses of unlabeled data, and where does medtech begin to fit into all of this? I recommend listening to episode 77, An Introduction into Artificial Intelligence and MedTech with Bertalan Mesco, Ph.D. And look at the show notes for links to Jonathan's LinkedIn profile and a couple books he recommends. Now, if you're like me, you may listen to podcasts at higher playback speeds. It's a great way to condense a one-hour podcast into 45 minutes or less. I don't recommend that today. Jonathan and I move quickly through a lot of information. And if you like this podcast, please recommend it to a friend via the share link in your preferred podcast player. Now, during the month of February, all new membership fees to the MedTech Leaders community are being contributed to HerHealthEQ.org. You learned about HerHealthEQ last week when I interviewed Marissa Fair, founder of this terrific organization. And for those of you that don't know, MedTech Leaders is an online community of MedTech professionals. An annual membership costs about four cups of coffee, and there is a free trial. You can learn more at medtechleaders.net. Now it is time to meet Jonathan to see how a practicing clinician is working to improve healthcare through informatics and artificial intelligence.
Jonathan, thank you very much for spending time with us today to talk about AI and your efforts um, in the AI space as not only a clinician, but also as a scientist and as a researcher. Very good. So glad to be here. Um, I think this is a very important topic, both on an individual and a broad societal level, and a lot of implications to it as well. Potential pitfalls and implications that are worth discussing to kind of get it out to the community. Yeah, it's uh, it's just an amazing topic. And the more I dig into it and talk to people like yourself, the more impressed I am with all the work that's being done, but also the challenges, the things that people like me, even though I'm in the med tech industry, we just don't understand really everything involved in AI, especially as it relates to medicine, because it's totally different than the AI that Google's using to help me get from one place to another on Google Maps, right? Yeah, it's it's really important and it's really different. So one of the things I like to do is first inter- tell us, you know, what your role is at Stanford and a little bit about what you do as a clinician and a little bit about what you do as a researcher scientist. Sure. So right now I'm a practicing internal medicine physician. I've done some primary care outpatient work. Most of my time now is spent in this hospital right here taking care of patients. I like to say um, I don't do surgery and I don't treat children, but uh, anything else, if you're hospitalized for, I could be taking care of you. Um, And a lot of that is a lot of complex medical decision-making, right? It's very overwhelming very quickly. The range of amazing modern technology we have also means it's, it's really quite overwhelming for any individual human to keep track of. So where the bulk of my work is actually running a clinical research laboratory, focusing on medical decision-making, clinical decision support systems, um, electronic medical records, all these kinds of designs. Can we build and prototype the AI systems that I wish existed to help me take better care of patients in so many words? Okay, excellent. And to start things off, why don't we just tell us a story, you know, something about where either... Um, AI was helpful to you or the lack of AI was evident and you wish you'd had it? Just tell us a a story that we can all relate to to create a foundation for this discussion. Sure. I mean, the common story I predicate because it really was a motivator. My my PhD, which we'll talk about before, was very not esoteric, but it was not very directly patient clinically related. So when I arrived in medical training at Stanford Medicine, I was arrived as an intern in medicine several years ago. Um, People would often come to this academic hospital for a higher level of care because it's getting too complicated at the local community hospital. They need additional help. They arrive in my lab. I review the chart. Patients here for a higher level of care. I'm thinking, what is that? Is that me? Am I the higher level of care? I I don't know what to do for this patient who has a heart attack and has leukemia at the same time. I don't know what to do for this patient who has AIDS and who has cancer and who was unconscious for no good reason. Um, And it's not like... To be clear, it's not like I'm lazy, it's not like I'm dumb, right? I've studied excessively. I've gotten an excessive amount of training. I looked it up in the textbook. I did a search online. Just someone just tell me what the answer is. And I'll make sure it gets done. The patient gets the care they need. And it was surprising once I went through medical training to realize very often you cannot look up the answer. No one really knows, or at least it's not very well defined, but you still got to take care of the person in front of you, right? So how do you do that? The reality is in practice, what you probably do is you take your best guess on your own anecdotal experience, um, or maybe you consult an expert, right? You get a second opinion. Let me ask this specialist, um, hey, what would you do for this patient who has hand cytopenia? All their blood cells are down for some reason. I don't know what's going on. And he recites to me kind of really what's clearly a list, a little algorithm in his head. 
Oh, well, make sure we're going to do the bone marrow biopsy, check the B12 and the, the parovirus, the HIV. He has this whole list. I'm frantically writing this down. And I'm thinking, why isn't this just written down somewhere already? Better why does the computer already have this information locked in? He's essentially executing an algorithm in his head to make that widely disseminatable. The broader perspective there that got me thinking is, if I'm stuck in the next tough case, and you know that, that doctor was really smart, I wish I could just see what they were doing, what she was doing the next time. Better yet, what if I could just sneak a peek into that doctor's charge and just read what she did for her last set of patients? You can really learn a lot from that kind of um, experiential learning. That It's just not written in any textbooks. Take that further. Why would you read just one doctor's charts? I bet if I read the last thousand doctor's charts about how they took care of similar patients, I bet I could learn an awful lot from that to assimilate their collective experience. I haven't accumulated 40, 50 years of medical experience yet. Nobody really can, um, let alone across the entire community. We have so much communal expertise and knowledge, but making that accessible and reusable. Now that got me thinking towards my PhD in computational work in the past is that's basically how recommender system works, algorithms work, right? Take the collective experience of the community and make that accessible to empower the individual. Um, that's something that could technically be done, has been much of the major innovations in computer science in the past 20-ish years really have been that, crowdsourcing, internet scale, um, distribution of information. And I thought that was a different topic, but now I realize it's something very relevant to medicine that we can really use right now. And if nobody else has built it, well, then I have the skills to build that prototype and build towards that future I'd like to get to. Okay, that's awesome. Perfect example of, of what we're talking about here. So now that we've shared that, I think people need to understand a little bit more about your background because I personally found it fascinating as I dug into your CV and you and I had our previous conversation and everything. You know, your first degree was in computer studies. You know, when did the interest in medicine take hold? An, an odd story. So I actually started college when I was 13 years old. I was in oh this, uh, this u- unique program at Cal State LA that allowed me to do that. And so I don't know what you were doing. You were 13 years old, but somebody asked you, so what, what, what career do you want to go to? What, you know, what do you want to study? Like, I don't know. You know. I want to be a stand-up comedian or something. Right? I just want right. to do something for, for fun. I, I, what, what did I know when I was 13 years old? It was more my parents said, why do you go to medical school? That's very hard to do and very important. And I didn't know any better. I'm like, sure, fine. I, I like to study hard things. So I will head down that path. But by the time I was ready to graduate around 18, 19 years old, I'm like, I, I hear I'm, I'm in these pre-med clubs. I did great in the MCAT, but you have to have this like life's mission and you, you know, this passion for being a healer. And you have this innate, you know, driven and motivation. Like I'm 19 years old. I feel nothing. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I'm not ready to commit my life to that. It's I, I don't really just know enough versus I've always liked computers and technology and thinking, right? The concepts of artificial intelligence, these concepts of like, how do you, how do I program a computer to do my homework for me? That's my real common thread of interest for the past 20 years. And so then I deviated quite drastically and I just went off to go work in software development during the, the dot-com tech boom back around 2000 when I was 19 years old. I could joke, uh, uh, started college at age 13, but you know, first girlfriend at age 20. So it's just, you can just, uh, draw your own <laughs> conclusions about how that works out. Right. <laughs> Having been in tech industry for a couple of years, though, which was, you know, very exciting, learned a lot about, you know, the world to some degree and, and how it maybe isn't exactly what I, I thought it was going to be. I could see that there was a purpose again back to medicine, which could be a more fulfilling long term career rather than the great job. I was in a very good tech job. I was paid very well and I was very good at it. But I could also say I'm not sure I'm going to feel satisfied. I'm still doing this in 10 years. 
Um, an MD alone, I learned about enough about myself. Being a full-time practicing doctor, that's fantastic to do, but that's not my personality. I did learn enough about that. Um, but maybe that combination and what I did was like combine an MD and a PhD in computer science. I think that would be a very unique combination. It could be very powerful. I actually don't even know where it's leading to at the time, um, but that could be a very unique thing that I like to say, I got the PhD to work on interesting problems and I got the MD just to make sure I could identify important ones that are directly relevant to human life. Wow. Because you were doing your PhD and your MD at the same time. So a PhD in computer sciences and an MD in medicine, medical doctorate, you know, um, all at the same time. Uh, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. But I'm just curious, when you applied for med school, was there any issue in the fact that you'd spent so much of your time in computer science? I think there certainly was, you know, if I had applied to peer med school straight through, I would have been a very classic, you know, maybe, maybe ordinary, but very exceptional candidate. Right. But by the time I came back, I had more of this very, very strange vision of merging these two disciplines. And I think that made me look like a weird person, weird athlete. Nowadays, I, th I think people realize that's a fantastic combination and such a need for this combination that, uh, that we'll never have enough of. At the time, I think I looked very odd to a lot of the medical schools I applied to. Like what? Did, should, you should get your PhD in like biology or neuroscience or computer science. What does that have to do with medicine? How, how does those relate at all? Um, and at the time, the reality, 15, you know, 20 years ago, I, I don't know that I knew the answer either. Um, but I, I knew that this is where the growth and where the needs are going into the future. And so there were many places, the place I went to, the University of California, Irvine, um, was very open-minded to it. I, that was very encouraging. They have a whole school of computer science. They've had another MD, PhD student a couple of years ahead of me um, doing that combination as well, which was very unique. Very few people are doing that. And so that was very encouraging, giving that space to develop that, um, which I've certainly found an important ingredient for any success I've had is uh, people having enough confidence, give me the space to try some crazy ideas and go for it after it, see if it'll work. Excellent. And so then you, you, you go on and you, um, you completed your internal medicine residency mm -hmm. and then you completed a fellowship in medical informatics. Mm -hmm. um, and before I ask you what's involved in that, because I want mm -hmm. you to tell me, but I, when I saw that in your CV and I was thinking back, I was on a plane next to a guy. We were both going to the same uh, medical uh, Congress. Of course, I was on the industry mm -hmm. side, but mm -hmm. and he and I were chatting. He was a PhD. And he started, I said, so what do you do? And he says, well, I'm in medical bioinformatics. Mm -hmm. And I was, what? <laughs> and he, he, he was explaining it to me. And mm -hmm. I sort of caught on. I got a little of the gist of it as he went into mm -hmm. it in some detail. But um, I had never ever heard of that before mm -hmm. and understood the importance of it. So tell us what is involved in a fellowship for medical informatics. Mm. Um, it, it can vary in the, the case that I did, I did it technically through the Palo Alto Veteran Affairs has a program. They've been training people in these cross-disciplinary way for, for many years. Um, it, a little bit of an odd story that I wasn't even looking for this fellowship. I was looking for a job, actually. It's uh -huh. like, I'm graduating. I've been training for 12 years. So I'm going to get a job again. Um, I, I, you know, literally over a million dollars in opportunity cost to come back to school for that long. Um, I couldn't go anywhere because my wife was still in pathology training here and I had to, I couldn't move anywhere basically. So I was just Googling Palo Alto informatics. Like, I don't know what, what job can I get to and found this fellowship. It, they were very encouraging. They found my CV online. Like, wow, you have so much relevant experience. We want to talk to you right now. 
And I found that very encouraging. And really what it was, they gave me the space, right? So one of my key mentors there, Steve Ash, he really encouraged me. I think really, you know, to turn the knob in my head to make me commit to it. So I, I did not want to do more training after my 12th year. This was another two years of training. It's sure. it, it was to have that time, the flexibility. Like if I want to um, do clinical work still, I can, I don't have to. If I want to take some more dedicated coursework to learn some more focus skills, I can, I don't have to. All I have to do is just be productive during those two years. And almost I get to define what that means. That was actually a quite a powerful luxury to have that space. And I and he said it then, I think it's true. I'll never have that space again, right? Just too many responsibilities now um, as the position um, escalates. And so it was learning some, again, some focused computational health services, statistical skills, a lot of grant writing, proposal making. How do you translate ideas into plans? Um, and that, that recommender system, for example, I described, I was inspired. I built a prototype during my medical residency. But that was like the very basic, you know, couple months make, make this prototype. Now I have the space to really build that idea, you know, dive in deeper. Does it really make sense? Extrapolate. How does this compare to clinical benchmarks? Um, and just have that space to kind of take an idea and run with it further was what really had a, a, that latitude to do so, which, which was essential for me at that time. I didn't necessarily need more instruction in the concrete sense. I needed the space and mentorship, and it certainly offered me that a great deal. So, okay. So they, so with that space, then you were able to create um, your own program, so to speak, that then ended up becoming uh, pretty darn productive. Yeah, it it was, it was interesting. You know, I I had sort of been out of the research world for a while and maybe I'll still do this allegory, but still useful. You know, I went to medical school, which the way you learn in medical school is actually pretty annoying as an engineer. Because it's so much memorization. You just memorize, you know, hundreds and hundreds of facts. It's just, it's just so obvious a computer would be better at that. Why are you making me memorize 100 bugs and 100 drugs? And the flip side, I did my computer science PhD in my software, which was very good, but very far removed. I was doing like organic chemistry, AI systems, predicting reactions. Very cool. Maybe a pharmaceutical company could have bought it. Or I, now I sell it as an educational tool, but completely removed from anything that would touch a patient or a doctor. And I felt like I was trying to learn these disparate things in isolation, which was also felt a little bit constraining. So I know that there's really something more synthetic that these had come together, but I'm learning them separately. The fellowship let me design the program and it was actually very liberating. Like I really felt like I finally could spread my wings in some sense where I'm applying advanced computational techniques, building you know, recommender algorithms, but it's applied to medical data, which I as a doctor know exactly what this means because I create this data when I take care of patients. I can understand the patient's story, even under looking at the data in a very concrete way that uh, it, it really came together. And the more I could study and understand, I realized how important and essential this is. And I thought I'd have to be, you know, studying genomes or, or something or very basic science topics, obviously critically important. But then um, other mentors have pointed out at the level of taking care of patients, there's so much complexity. We need very smart people to work on very hard problems just at the delivery of medical care and understanding the breadth of knowledge, um, which in my very biased opinion is computational techniques is the only credible way we can manage this complexity that it was actually very exciting that all of these kind of threads were finally came together. And I think why I became so productive. I mean, I, I've been preparing for 12 years to do it and, and finally bringing it together. Great. And are there different se- segments to medical bioinformatics? Sure. I, I mean, th- that that's it's all separate subdomains. I mean, there's, I would describe what I do as a little bit more medical informatics or clinical informatics, right? The subject is, is medicine, but it's practicing of medicine in, in some sense or 
uh, how, how you directly take care of patients and make decisions, for example, versus bioinformatics might be more, are you studying like genome sequence or protein structure, um, this kind of thing, which might inform how you design a drug or detect a disease that could down the line affect how you would interact with a patient. Other of my key mentors, you know, Russell Elfman described, it's all, it's all data from, from right. molecules to drugs, to cells, to people, to populations. And the common thread of skill is being able to computationally handle and understand these complex data sources and complex decisions and models. And then it's just which level. Here's a lesson I learned from my industry experience, which I kind of took to heart, is the very valuable people. You have to have the technical skill. If you don't, I mean, you kind of can't really do anything, right? You have to have technical skill. But the really valuable people bring the technical skill and also learn some business or application domain very deeply so they can really understand the right questions to ask and make find the analogies, make the connections that make sense. And so for my case, I decided that, that medicine, the practice of medicine would be the important application domain that I wanted to learn about. Okay. And so let's move, let's start moving into artificial intelligence. Sure. And um, so where do you see, you know, the value of artificial intelligence? How is it going to contribute to healthcare? Mm-hmm. And you sort of referred to it in the story we told at the beginning, but let's yeah. go ahead and go back to that. Yeah. I mean, I would say a couple of the key threads, the, what overarching thread that, that I think motivates a lot of what I do is this iron triangle between cost, quality, and access. You know, a lot of drama about healthcare reform. It's because you can't improve all three at the same time. We always have to make trade-offs because there's a fundamental limitation in supply the most important, the most important scarce resource in the healthcare system is access to a qualified professional. It's a qualified expert, basically. Um, if you run out of ventilators and medicine, like that's really bad, but you can literally manufacture more. You can't manufacture more people, right? If, if you have a, a shortage of nurses to start executing care, it doesn't matter how many beds or machines you have, right? You really need this combination of that expertise. And so I think there's opportunities that for AI to really make a difference. You know, my my, my, my pessimistic point of view is say like, that's an intractable trade-off. Someone's got to lose if someone's going to win. My techno-optimistic point of view is how do we create supply to break out of this cycle? One of the ways would be things like AI systems to increase automation of certain tasks. So we expand the access and reach to more people using the same amount of resources. And we can delve more into that. Or you can systematically find you know, fraud, waste, and abuse or inefficiencies in some sense in the existing system. So again, we can do more good for more people with the same set of resources we have. And I think there's a ton of opportunity for that and a ton of need is a reality, right? It's, the problems will only escalate. They already are and will only get even worse. You, it, it demands that we meet it with some novel approach. And again, my biased perspective, computation is the only credible way you're going to be able to tackle these things. Sure. And just sort of a, a, a tangent on this, um, are you out there at the Stanford Health System, are you noticing this difficulty in terms of supply of healthcare professionals, nurses, and doctors and such? Absolutely. I'm sure COVID has hit everybody and it's to different extremes. We haven't, I think, been hit as badly as many of the, the toughest places. We're actually quite privileged on some of them. And yet still, even us, we can get overwhelmed. Right now, there's normally five, maybe six medical teams, like core medical teams in the hospital. Now we're like at 10, right? And we don't normally have 10, which means they had to scramble and put together surge teams of people who are not typically practicing a, a, a regular medicine just because there's just an overwhelming need for uh, patient care. And we're putting it together to, get, to meet those needs. And even then, we will never meet all the needs. You know, some of the explicit projects I'm working on is, let alone Stanford, and just in any system, 
Um, patients could be waiting months to get an appointment to see a specialist. That is not atypical at all, um, let alone the you know tens of millions of the U.S., little billions worldwide. If you need to see a specialist and you get a referred from a rural area or you're a Medicaid patient, um, you could be waiting 12 months for that appointment or very likely you would just never get that appointment. Half the patients, they just give up. I was supposed to see a diabetes specialist. It's taken 12 months. Just I just give up, basically. And so how much needed essential and recommended medical care is just not happening and thus delayed diagnosis, non-optimal treatment, worsened outcomes, and, and ironically increased costs for everybody at the same time um, because of those things. And what I often tell my trainees, my medical trainees, too, I say, oh, well, that's terrible. We should, you know, work harder. It's of course we want to, but eventually, you, if you, it's just you, your human self, look, I'll see 20 patients tomorrow. Oh, I don't like it that there's a three-month waiting list. There's people boarding in the hallways in the emergency room. That's that's terrible. I'll, I'm willing to work harder, even even I paid for it. I, I want to make the world better, right? I, I'm doing this with purpose, not, not for the money. But okay, fine, I'll see 25 patients tomorrow. Oh, that's not enough. 30 patients tomorrow, you know, 40. At some point, it, it doesn't matter if I want to. I'm not, not physically able to see more patients in a day um, because that actually is the fundamental bottleneck or resource constraint. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're not willing to work harder. At some point, it's just not possible. So we have to make either we make tough economic choices about how we allocate those resources, which means somebody's got to lose for somebody to win, or we develop new technologies and methods to uh, reach more people um, than we've been able to before. Which brings us back. Uh, uh, away from my tangent back to, you know, AI, could you tell us a little bit more what you, when you say a recommender algorithm, what do you mean? Sure. This is stuff you interact with every day, all the time. If you, even if you don't realize it, if, uh, if you buy something online from Amazon, it says, by the way, other people also bought this. Maybe you'll like it too. If you're, if you're watching a Netflix or a YouTube video, I'm not trying to name company names, but just, just common yeah. things. You, any sure. website you interact with nowadays um, it'll, you didn't ask for it necessarily, right? But without even asking for it, can, it's automatically inferring the context of what you're thinking about and saying, I think you might like this too, right? It's, this is a classic recommender album. Let me recommend other stuff you might like. And it's not telling you what to do. You can ignore it completely. If you know what you want to do, you just do what you were going to do. But this is essential. You know, one other key theme I like to describe is I actually don't think if it is, is AI going to replace doctors? I mean, certainly within my lifetime, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, and people who do, I say either you don't understand AI or you don't understand medicine, medicine very often both. Um, it, but having said that, it's not, I'm not being pessimistic about that because there's a huge opportunity. I don't ever think computers are really going to replace uh, a specialist. And I don't think they're ever really going to do that thinking for us. But what are they very good at? They're managing complex data sources and narrowing them down and making them digestible into you know, usable chunks. Right? If you had to, I don't know, just browse videos to or movies to watch as a very mundane example, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of choices. That's an overwhelming ocean of choices. It's completely unmanageable for a human to think through. So what you need is collaborative filtering, looking at what other people do, some way to narrow it down. If you narrow it down to a top 10 list, Oh, now as an engaged human, I can make a smart choice given that I can focus my attention there. And it's still not giving me the answer. Still, if there's something in my personal situation, I know what really fits me best. But picking from 10 is much more manageable than picking from 100,000, which is what the like, overwhelming kind of choices that people face. And how do you do that? How do these recommender algorithms work? I used to think that these algorithms, somebody coded them that you know, sci-fi action movie or this director, that actor, something about you like them, they're in common. Um, actually, that's that's just too hard to do. That's too laborious. 
And there's thousands more movies coming out every year, or let alone thousands of you know, new medications or diagnostics coming out all the time. Um, instead, what happens is you can learn a lot from the crowd, the community's behavior. Actually, the algorithm has no idea why these two things are similar. They just know that everybody who buys this, 70% of them buy this too. I have no idea why, but that's an observable phenomena. And really what you're doing is you're actually taking advantage of the best of the computer and the human. The humans through their behavior are basically telling you the value, the, the associations of what's useful. And I think there's actually a lot we can gain and learn from that community learned expertise. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's sort of like when I, cause I, I'm always fascinated with, um, like I use Google as my mm -hmm. main choice mm -hmm. of searching like most people do. And I I'll type three letters in and the, mm -hmm. and the three letters are even like three consonants. <laughs> so they're not even showing the, the, like a word it's three consonants in a row mm -hmm. and boom in the top five, you know, recommended items is exactly what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. um, Disturbing sometimes almost. Yeah. Right. But, uh, <laughs> But the thing right. is, it's like, it, and it seems like it was Google, like, they programmed this. It's like, no, we've just watched millions of people, and this is what usually happens, uh, given, given that pattern we're observing. Yeah, exactly. So um, if we take, you know, so we, we understand how, like, I think the recommender algorithm is a really good, uh, you know, way of trying to appreciate what AI could do for a physician in, in the place where you're at. Um, so I'm trying to decide where I want to go here. Uh, let's, let's go, instead of going to what are the challenges, you know, how do you take, well, it is a challenge to you. How do you take this into your lab and mm -hmm. then say, I need to create a solution. How can I create something of a solution to mm -hmm. this lack of information I have or that my colleagues have, or, this poor workflow that we have, how do you, where do you go from there into your, into your lab, so to speak? Mm. Uh, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of depth and directions it can go in, in that particular example. You know, this is when I, I was a trainee, I pitched this idea to, to, you know, Russ, who was my advisor at the time. I said, actually, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something like this? Like, I kind of have this concept, but how would we actually pull something off like that? And then, um, you know, he pointed to, he's like, well, you need, you need the data, basically. You need something to work off. You need that. That's where so much of the rich, um, almost the fuel is. And then it's kind of figuring out how to refine that into something useful and usable. Um, and so what I did and what I still tend to do for a lot of my projects is a very effective infrastructure and collaborations with the Stanford Hospital, basically, and the clinics, where they've created a whole research infrastructure where um, I can access basically every every medical record or any patient seen by a Stanford doctor in the past, you know, 10 years. And in particular, what I didn't want to know was what did the doctor order for them, right? What medication, what x-ray, what lab test did they actually order for you? Because that's what actually effectively how medical care gets executed. And to some simplifying degree, my job as a doctor is to produce that, the list of orders to define the care plan. Um, and I like to draw the analogy. It's like, it's like the doctor is shopping for you, right? They're mm -hmm. adding to their shopping cart what should be in your shopping cart. So it's a little bit weird. They're not shopping for themselves. They're shopping on your behalf based on what they understand about what your preferences and desires and needs are. Um, but having that record, um, it allows me to anticipate what they are doing, what they're deciding, and then figuring out exactly what patients would need to interfere from there. So some of it is get the data, design and prototype algorithms to see if you can actually simulate and reproduce and predict these things you know, levels up that we're getting into more is like 
counter examples of the negative versus positive findings. Recommend what you want, but also discourage what you probably don't need. Those are complementary needs, right? Create supply or, or reduce inefficiencies. But then it also is going up to levels where we've done um, user interface testing, right? I'm, I'm literally writing a brief perspective about this right now. A lot of what we tend to do as researchers focus on the information needs. I bet the doctor patient really needs this information. That is probably less than half the problem, actually. Even if you generated the perfectly shiny information, if it's not delivered through the right interface, the right point in the workflow, it, it just doesn't matter. No one will be able to use it or absorb it in any effective way. You know, it becomes almost like social psychology, behavioral economics, um, kind of changes in, in behavior are much more challenging things. And meeting those two is itself a challenge. So user interface testing, implementation science, let alone now partnering with a hospital on some targeted quality improvement interventions. Here is this research concept. Half the laboratory tests ordered in the hospital are arguably wasteful. They don't help anybody. It's just something as a habit. We just order to check this stuff all the time just because. Mm -hmm. um, and I've shown in a you know research paper, we can predict many of these times that the test is going to be normal. You haven't even ordered it yet. I can already predict it's going to be normal, which is arguably a waste of money. And it's a harm to the patient. You're sticking them with needles, keeping them up at night. Um, but now that we've published the research paper, how do we translate that into direct interventions to actually start changing behaviors and deliver more efficient and thus effective healthcare for more people? Right. When you and I were talking the other day, you were I think you were giving something of an example of how you would take a workup, a, a sort of a prototypical workup of a AI enhanced procedure or evaluation or whatever, and then experiment with some of your colleagues. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. Um, so the one very, very concrete one we did was for inpatient hospital admissions, you know, just because that's what I have most direct experience with, so I can qualitatively evaluate as well. And what in real life happens is, you know, doctor sees the patient, evaluates and figures out what's going on. And then they go to the computer. I want this x-ray. I want this lab test. I want this medication. They're basically defining the care plan based on what they're interacting with um, to, to get things moving along. So that's what happens in real life. And most of what they're doing is off the top of their head. What does a patient with pneumonia need? Let's say they need an x-ray. Uh, they need this antibiotic. They need a blood culture, right? They're just remembering off the top of their head, which... Works pretty well, but you can imagine how error prone and how variable undesirably that can be from one person to the next. Um, so built the algorithm, trained on data to guess what the doctor will need in advance. And then what you're asking for is where we meet in the middle, in the middle to see what would happen in a simulated environment. I had a bunch of doctors um, sit down at a user interface prototype, a mock-up. It looks like a, a computer system, like you're taking care of a patient, entering orders, looking at their lab tests, their vital signs, you're picking what medications, what lab tests they need. But that mock-up also is powered by this underlying engine that's saying, hey, doctor, based on what you've done so far, I'm guessing you want one of these 10 things next. And it allows them to interact with that. And as we do it, this is a classic um, user study where I'm recording the whole thing, right? We're recording the screen, we're watching them, um, just and we we just tell them, doctor, just take care of the patient, right? And we try not to say anything more. We want their kind of unbiased perspective on what's happening. And for one, just see if they're taking care of the patient in a competent way. Do they interact with the suggestions being offered? And if so, are they doing that in a way that's you know as good or better than um, what would have happened otherwise? That's really interesting. And so, so it's it's sort of giving suggestions to the doctor as they're entering information. What is the, re uh, like when you did that, what did you find the results to be? 
Sure, there, there's several uh, key things among them. I mean, th I think this key study was important to answer key critiques, right? Because the prior state of the art in the research field at that point, a couple of people had done the algorithms kind of like I had or variations of it. Can you guess what the doctor will do? But almost all the evaluation stopped there. It's like, we did that and some analysis implies that if you simulate this, maybe you'll have X percent accuracy. But key question is like, doctors, I don't know if you know, I feel like alert fatigue is a very real uh, problem or phenomenon where everybody's got an idea. Doctors should also do this. They should also do that. So we make the computer fire up alerts all the time as they're working to the point that it's it's overloading. Imagine, you know, every time, every 10th word you typed into a document, the, you know, the word pause and says, are you thinking about something else? Um, it, it quickly becomes very annoying. And then it gets to be the point where then the user will just not interact with them at all. They'll just override, ignore all of them because it becomes too much spam, basically you can't pay attention to. So one key question we try to answer is, is this even acceptable to doctors? Will they use these suggestions? Um, is that interface uh, acceptable or not? Will it make their decisions worse? Because this was a common concern. Wait a minute, where do these suggestions? Is it recommending me a particular x-ray, a particular medication? That sounds kind of scary, does it? A computer's just like suggesting what thing to do next for a patient? So th there was a concern about whether people accept it. And then also, would it make things worse? Maybe the doctor is following random suggestions. If you clicked on every link that Google told you to, if you bought every product that Amazon recommended to you, you, you might not be better off, right? Um, right? They have a different incentive than necessarily what your, your own uh, self-interest, or in this case, the patient's interest. You know, this is a key challenge, right? Just because something is common doesn't mean it is good. Um, there are theorems for why that usually it, it's more likely to be good than bad. That's why we have democracies and we vote, right? This is rather, this is why we have juries deciding guilt over, over innocence rather than judges, right? Even though the individuals might not know as much, but we think there are less chance of bias. We have actually a better chance of finding the right answer by aggregating these votes. So anyhow, would people accept it? And if so, would it actually make them worse because they're following, you know, they're not thinking anymore. They're, they're doing, uh, they're mindlessly following the computer at that point. Um, all at the edge cases, all these things can happen. What we actually found is greater than 95% of the cases, the doctors use these suggestions in this interface, even though by design, they were never required to. Just like on a product recommendations, you could have ignored everyone. Nobody was forcing you to. If you knew what you were doing and you didn't want to be hassled, you, you never had to click on anything. You never had to override a pop-up. You just, you just take care of work. Just take care of the patient. That's all we want you to do. Just take care of the patient. Do what you do best. But it turns out the suggestions were where they were already thinking about what to do next anyway. It was offering something when they were already kind of inherently asking for it that over 95% of the time they, they accepted and wanted to use it. Um, we also had a, a separate expert panel of three uh, board certified physicians basically score the medical appropriateness of their decisions for these simulated cases as well. Because even if people use it and they're very efficient, what if they're efficiently doing the wrong thing? I mean, that's that, right. no better, right? That, that's <laughs> exactly. not what we're trying to do. Efficiently doing something bad is, is, is not, uh, you're, you're better off having inefficiency in that case. And reassuringly, we found that, no, that, that wasn't the case. The quality, the appropriateness of care was, was as good um, as uh, either way. It, it was interesting that there actually were more better, more good decisions being made, more good stuff was being ordered for the patients with the recommender system turned on. Um, although there was also just a little bit more stuff in general. It's like, oh, that extra lab test for that, you know, less likely uncommon disease, that actually is a good thing to do because you don't want to miss that. Um, 
But uh, if you missed it, it's probably not the end of the world most of the time. But so it's good. We help them catch more of that stuff. Don't forget to do this. Don't forget that because it actually is used for a whole comprehensive care suite. Um, but it also did get tend to people to just do a little bit more. So on average, it was it was very comparable. And ultimately, um, I think just quash the critique anyway that if doctors have this algorithm in front, they're going to just start doing stupid stuff and they're not going to pay attention anymore. And that's really not what we found. Okay. And, and that sort of uh, segues into, I was going to ask you about the challenges because you had a couple in your CV, you had a couple really interesting presentations and or papers, but, um, and I think they sort of lean into the challenges. So one of them was called the decaying relevance of clinical data when predicting future decisions. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you guys, this is, I think both a problem, but also it speaks to the need for what we're doing here in medicine. Um, let's say in contrast, when in my graduate school, I was you know programming machines to solve chemistry problems. And that took years of my life to write you know 1400 rules about how nitrogen and oxygens interact. But you know what, after I wrote it, it's like, it's like I'm done. Like chemistry is chemistry. The way atoms interact, that's not changing in anybody's lifetime. Right? It's just a nature, you know, a, a rule of nature. Uh, versus if you try to write the rules for how medicines work, if patient has liver disease, then do this, this, and that. That's a classic way practice guidelines are written and how um, in general, most clinical practice is thought to be practiced. But it, the studies show that medicine, that gets out of date about every three years. Guidelines become wrong about every three years because new medicines get evolved. You know, if you treat pneumonia today, it's very different than two years ago before there was a pandemic, right? Um, if you treated hepatitis C now the way you did 10 years ago, it wouldn't make sense. We have much, much better treatments for that. Um, we have all sorts of new diagnostic tests. It's amazing all these great advances in medical sciences that we have, but changing technology, epidemiology, if you still, if you try to wrote a static rule book, right, there actually is no finish line. There is no gold standard end truth to the practice of medicine. It is by nature always evolving. So what that means for, say, a recommender system or prediction algorithm, if we train it based on the data we had from 10 years ago, it's, it's probably not that relevant. It's like we just don't do medicine exactly the same way. There's some overlap. And in that particular paper, I basically quantify that phenomena. So if I were to train this example recommender algorithm, and I did it based on data from last month versus the last year versus the last four years, um, it, it actually, in, in that particular example, uh, one year of data was about as was a little bit better than one month of data because you have more. But if you went beyond that, if you look farther than one year, you weren't getting much gains anymore. In fact, eventually the quality of the recommendation started to deteriorate because it was starting to recommend things based on old practices and thus speaking to the need for adaptive dynamic learning algorithms, right? Rather than the fixed rule set, which is very useful in the near term, but we have to have strategies or approaches. And in this case, I'm hoping technologies that can keep adapting to um, changes in medicine. Otherwise, we'll just learn how to practice medicine from 50 years ago, which, which you definitely don't want to do. You, right. you would not w- want a doctor to, to treat you that way. So, sort of an aside, we, my wife is a pathologist, you know, so she look at slides to make diagnoses. Um, and there's this angst, which I, I think is overblown, of like, oh my goodness, is AI going to take away our job? And it'll just be reading slides for us. Um, I, I don't think it's going to be taking over anybody's job in that way. Having said that, these are new evolving technologies that we have to learn how to use and assimilate into our practice, just as with anything else, whether it was AI or any other tool, the internet or database or something like this. It, imagine you took a pathologist or a doctor from 50 years ago 
and you time traveled them today and you told them to practice today, you would fire them immediately, right? Because it's we don't do things the same way we did back then. That there's all sorts of adjustments that have to be made. And so in the same way, I don't think AI is replacing anybody, but it does reflect a new approach that we have to learn how to assimilate to best take care of our patients. Sure. And then you had a you had another one, which was um, wisdom of the crowd or tyranny of the mob. So tell me about that. Yeah, you got it. So this is the what I was alluding to is a key critique, and and, and it's a good one. It's a good one. It's a very it's very deep. I've had a whole string of papers to unpack this. In so many words, a recommender algorithm is going to say, "Hey, most people do this. You maybe you want to do it too. Most people like you." You know, want, want to do this. Most people who type those three consonants into Google search end up doing this. So we think this is what you want. And there's a reason because there's, do you believe in this wisdom of the crowd, this collective wisdom? Why do we have a voting democracy? There's definitely some people who vote in dumb ways. You know, no matter what you believe, there's just somebody you think is, is like, I can't believe they let them vote. Um, and yet we still have a majority votes tends to, is more likely to converge on correct answers if you believe in this phenomenon. Right. As long as each person has a better than a random chance of picking the right answer, if you just add up the, the sum um, that just mathematically will tend to converge or wait a minute, wait a minute. That's the wisdom of the crowd. Or do you have the tyranny of the mob? What if you have? I don't know. I'm going to get myself into trouble here. You have some like Bitcoin, like speculative bubble. Everybody's doing it. Oh, my God, I got to jump in that train, too. And everybody jumps off the cliff together. Right, that, that can happen too. Just because something's common, just because everybody's doing it, they might be also suffering from common mass delusion, right? And or they might have all accepted some de facto standard, which is really not the best, and more for cultural inertial reasons. We we can't break out of that cycle. These these are both possibilities. And so that paper, I tried to study that explicitly for the case of medical decision making, just because that's the subject area I'm, I'm focusing on recommender algorithm generate what do you think someone with a stomach bleed what what should they get someone with a heart failure what do you think they should get someone with a heart attack what do you think they should get and the computer will come up with those those um, suggestions i can compare them to what real doctors do and show like these algorithms are quite predictive what a real doctor would do but wait a minute just because a real doctor does it who says the doctor is right you know maybe some doctors are dumb and they're doing bad or wasteful inefficient things my broader argument is if you really thought that would happen more likely than not, then you should just shut down all the hospitals if you really think doctors are more bad than good. I, I don't think that's the case. They just have to be better than random for this to work. But to be even more explicit, we also use some external guidelines, right? I told you about we had the expert panel reviewing, yep. and also we've had um, clinical practice guidelines. That's about as close as you can get to the textbook that we're supposed to follow when we practice medicine. We should not, we should not as individual doctors, be making up medicine as we go. That's actually really bad. Um, if we are supposed to have a standard, it should be basically what clinical practice guidelines say, knowing that they don't actually have all the answers, but for what they do have answers for, we should be following those. And so what I did was I compared the algorithm generated suggestions versus these reference guidelines and shows that the algorithm generated suggestions match those guidelines as well, or even better than checklists that were manually curated by committees in the hospital, right? Because the existing, I'm envisioning this, you know, five, 10 year vision of these dynamic AI systems that interact with us as, as doctors. The current state of affairs is um, a template, a checklist. Some committee in the hospital says, well, you know, we don't have to make up heart failure treatment every day. You know, we, we've, I've, I've read, we've read the literature. We know basically what it should be. Let's just make a checklist of the 20 things that people should think about each time and find that that 
doesn't match the guidelines even as well as what the algorithm can generate. Because it's not the algorithm is so smart and made it up and can read the literature or something. It's no, the algorithm is just paying attention to what doctors actually do. And that is what doctors do. They read the literature, they pay attention to the patients, see what's working, what's not. Um, and that is a such a rich and such a powerful form of intelligence that computers just nowhere close to being able to simulate. So I'm thinking why, I don't even have to, I'm taking this shortcut, I'm letting what I call this army of manual annotators, which is practicing physicians. They're already doing the hard work, thinking hard about their patients and figuring out what's the right thing to do in each of their cases. And just collecting that into a format that's usable and distributable is um, what we're trying to do. And it seems to me like there's two, um, at least two major sources of data <clears throat> for somebody like yourself to work with as you're trying to create, develop AI uh, to help, you know, your colleagues out. And one of course would be from a, an EMR system or mm -hmm. EHR system. Um, so you have all this data on patients, you know, uh, how often a, a pa patient with a certain kind of problem or diagnosis has been, how, how they've been treated and the result of that treatment, how, what was the readmission rate? What was, you know, mm -hmm. how, what was the length of stay, blah, blah, blah. And you've got all these factors like their age, you know, parameters of their health, you know, what their blood pressure was, what their heart rate was, you know, and so on and so forth. Lots of data points. So you've got, that's one source of data that <clears throat> you could be working with. And then on the other side, in terms of general knowledge, and when I mentioned this to my wife, who's a retired ER physician, and mm. one of the first things she said was oncology, you know, because there's so much data coming out in studies and, you know, that mm -hmm. there's no way a, a human can keep up mm -hmm. with this. So there's that kind of data too. How, how do you try to bring these things together to the benefit of the physician who's trying to make some decisions? Mm. Yeah. I mean, the both, both key things, I'm assuming one of the key motivating factors for a lot of work is this, you know, overwhelming information, you know, the, over 70 randomized control trials, 11 systematic reviews being published every day. I don't know about you, but like I'm way behind in terms of keeping up with the literature. In theory, that's part of our job as a practice doctor. Like, I should keep up with it, read all the latest science so I know the most up-to-date way to take care of patients. Clearly impossible already. It's, it's long since been impossible for any human to keep up with reading all this stuff. So how are you supposed to adapt to it? Um, you keep up with what you can. You could have systematic efforts to codify as a cancer example, is good because it's just overwhelming just to barely keep up with all the new therapies and, and targets for it. Um, you know, the NCCN, National Cancer Center um, guidelines, they try to codify all this. Can you programmatically make that a computable form? That's some effort. But as we talked about, out of date, really fast, right? It's mm -hmm. it's a full-time job for a whole team and they will still never keep up. It, it keeps becoming out of date and also it's not prescriptive. It doesn't give you all the answers. So, but there are efforts to do that. What if we had more ways to automatically review and screen the literature? That's an active area of research, also very hard because it still takes a certain human expertise and interpretation to assimilate those. I'm trying to take the shortcut in this case and saying, although it'd be an interesting research question, to make something practically so that I could actually like read the literature, read the latest guidelines and interpret the text automatically and translate them into uh, practical clinical recommendations. I think that'd be a really cool area of research. And I may get into that down the line, but as I said, in the meantime, what I'm actually doing is I'm exploiting the fact that what do the thousands, the tens of thousands of doctors do right now? That's what they're basically doing already. 
they're already doing the very hard intellectual work of translating what they're reading versus and matching it to what they're seeing in real life. And if I just learn from their behavior, from their experiences, indirectly, I'm taking advantage of that. And as things are becoming out of date, practices are changing, doctors' practice will change. And so we can learn from those um, vanguards in practice to kind of uh, disseminate that to the broader community. Okay. And because in one of the comments you had when you and I were talking the other day, you said that one of the bottlenecks, and I think this is what you're relating, what Mm -hmm. you're sort of saying right now is labeling the data, Mm -hmm. regardless of where it comes from, to be able to, uh, one bottleneck is making sure it's properly labeled because the data comes Mm -hmm. from different sources and people may label it Mm different, the same Mm -hmm. data differently. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So so that's one component of it. You know, the classic, you know, now somewhat an aside, but it actually shocks me to what people call AI nowadays, you know, given that I've been studying these types of things for, for over a decade. But now, more or less, people are calling machine learning as AI. You know, I think that's it's quite an oversimplification. Right. Um, but machine learning, well, that's just learning from data, learning from examples. Given this example, um, the correct answer, given this picture, the correct answer is this is a dog. Given this picture, the correct answer, this is a cat. You know, for example, where do you get those labels, the, the target, the thing that the algorithm is supposed to learn the common pattern for? Um, classically, it's you have to hire humans. Can you just look at these thousand pictures and tell me if this is pneumonia or if this is a dog or if this is cancer? Here's a thousand patient charts. Can you tell me if this is diabetes with complications or without? Can you look at these thousand charts and can you annotate it and say, what do you think was the right next treatment, this medication or that medication? And you can do that very laborious, right? And uh, d- does not scale well at, at all. Sometimes you still have to do that to for ask some targeted questions. Um, but again, it, I'm inspired. There's an article from Google uh, research many years ago. I think it's called the unreasonable effectiveness of data. And so rather than dreaming about all the super cool things, you had this perfectly curated, lovingly labeled data set. And yeah, if it was perfectly made, you could do all sorts of cool stuff. But you might have a hundred, you might have a thousand examples where it's, it's so much labor and, and skilled labor to do that. Instead, think about what can you do with the masses of unlabeled data that is generated all the time. In Google's case, it's like every time somebody types an internet search, like I don't, you don't really can't read their mind, but based on what they click next, you can make some pretty good guesses about what they were looking for. And so just by having millions, billions of those examples, how much you learn. And so similarly, as I described, what are doctors but an army of manual annotators? I can't afford to pay a doctor to review 10,000 charts for me, but also even if I don't, there already are thousands of doctors manually annotating tens, hundreds of thousands of patients every day with their best guess of what they think the appropriate next step in the treatment or management plan is. And um, right now, like the way you learn medicine in real life, you, you read the textbook and you find that's got maybe a quarter of the answers you need to actually take care of people in the real world. So much of it you learn from experience and learn from your senior colleagues. You know, how, how do they do it? What would they do? And then you sometimes see that they really have figured it out. They've worked out a pattern that works well. And it's just lost to the ether, right? You know, one patient at a time, but that experience, that expertise they've they've gained through some hard-fought practice, no one else gets to see or learn from it, or at least only in a very anecdotal apprenticeship manner. Um, and I'm trying to unlock that power and, and disseminate it broadly. Maybe make a, a, a side point to kind of inspire that broadly. I, I like one way that was phrased, you know, 100 years ago in medicine, we learned through the apprenticeship model because one doctor can know it all and do it all because we kind of nothing we did really worked that much anyways. There wasn't that much to learn in some sense that would actually work. Now, modern advanced scientists, we've got tens of thousands of d- d- diagnostic tests, medications, surgeries, diagnosis codes. We have so much advanced, which is great. 
completely overwhelming. And yet still we train medicine through the apprenticeship model, basically. You know, we just just hang out with an expert and you'll learn what they know. That was okay when you only had to learn 10 things. When I can learn 10,000 things, that's completely does not work anymore. So then we limped along with specialization and subspecialization. Well, look, I can't know everything about everything, but I'll learn everything about the heart. You learn everything about the stomach. You learn everything about the lung. Now producing, you know what? Even within the heart, like I'll learn everything about heart failure. You learn about heart attacks. You learn about congenital heart disease. You know, the joke is pretty soon. We'll each learn about one gene defect. And, you know, everybody else, you know, owns one gene defect because there's just too much complexity that branches out and also a terrible care coordination. Now, no doctor knows anything about the patient, right? You have six different specialists by the time you age and have multiple chronic conditions. Nobody can put the whole picture together. And again, my bias is you have to have computational systems to synthesize it back together to turn into effective care. Yeah. I mean, you're so right. I mean, I've spent a lot of my time on ophthalmology as uh, on the industry side and you end up with 10 subspecialties and even <laughs> as on the industry side, you can't keep up with it all. So I understand completely what you mean. So where do you, where does med tech fit into this in terms of helping you either gather data or create data? Where does, where do medical technologies fit in to assisting in this movement towards, you know, better use of informatics and AI? The things that come to mind would be things like data capture and interfaces. Um, You know, so I think what you're alluding to is I tend to study the hospital and to some degree the clinics a lot. And is it because the hospital is the best place? It's it's a good place, but it's also it's it's just where the light is shining, right? It's just where it's easy to study because we're we're tracking the patient every single day. We we know exactly what's going on. But the you know 99% of our patients' lives are not in the hospital, right? They're at home or wherever they are, and we we become completely blind to them in terms of the electronic medical record as to what's happening. And so, how much are we missing in terms of giving appropriate suggestions? or appropriate follow-up when we're basically just completely blind to what's happening there and their technology in terms of data capture, um, you know, even very rudimentary things, let alone moderate things you used to be for a heart failure patient. Could you just stand on this scale and just weigh yourself every day? Just do that once per day. That would be really helpful to know if you're gaining too much water weight or not. And then the next level was like, what if that scale was tied to a Bluetooth receiver and could transmit that data to some tracking central tracking station every day? Now, remotely, we can tell, oh, you're gaining 10 pounds a day. There's something wrong. We got to call you because we need to make an intervention. You're about to have a heart failure exacerbation. But you can imagine how much more sophisticated you go far beyond that. That's just a, the most rudimentary example. The other one I think MedTech could really help with is, as I mentioned, the information, the decisions is key, but it's probably actually less than half the problem. The, the much harder ones, actually, the really hard problem is incentives. A lot of the incentives aren't aligned right for us to do what we want to do. Um, but it's also the interface you know, what are the are almost behavioral psychology techniques to get patients to do what, what, what best serves them and to help nudge doctors and other decision makers in a way, make the right thing, the easy thing to do is, is always a, a common mantra. And it turns out it's actually quite hard to do that because one thing you got to know the right thing. And even if you did, how do you inject it in a place where these workflows are, are where they need to be? How do we make doctors not the most expensive data entry clerk in the hospital, right? So much of our job is great. I go pick, you know, 20 ICD-10 codes for a checklist, just like fill out these charts, just so like the basic, you know, process go out. Uh, some quality reporting committee wants to fill out some other form. Oh my gosh, I got to fill this prior authorization form just to get my patient the medicine they need. How many of these processes could be automated or streamlined? 
And the lower hanging fruit for industry and technology and devices, it's probably more of these administrative processes, you know, transcribing the conversation of the patient interaction so that I don't have to retype that down um, in some sense. I think there's so many of these opportunities here that, um, again, lets us make better use of the, the toughest scarce resource, which is the human time. Yeah. So, and one, one of the things you were commenting on takes us into almost like remote patient monitoring, mm -hmm. which gives you a fuller picture of what a patient is. I think somebody the other day said, yeah, we only had, and it could have been you and you and I were talking about, <laughs> typically you only have like a, a five minute window of a patient's mm -hmm. life when they've yeah. sat down and they're in front of you yeah. <clears throat> and the data and you just got there. And you're making a decision about how the next year of their life is going to be lived based on right. this five minute window. And right. how easily you can be completely misinformed, be misinformed about what, you, what your perception is that's happening. So there's probably a lot of med tech companies that are very close to being on the on the rim of remote patient monitoring, and they could just take that push and mm -hmm. and help make that work better. And then mm -hmm. I think the other thing I'm hearing you say is if if you did have a sophisticated uh, diagnostic device, it could be maybe it's an imaging mm -hmm. device, maybe it's let's say it's ultrasound. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and if that device not only just gives you an image, but maybe it has some AI invested in it, so it can load, do some of the work of loading that um, mm -hmm. EMR mm -hmm. sheet with the data, and you don't have to type it out, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, okay. You got it. In some of these cases, it's uh, we tend to focus on, especially as we you know, sexy sounding, you know, medical decision making or super diagnosis when the reality is most of the actual practical opportunity is um, the, the administration. It's it's shocking how many non-medical staff there are behind every medical uh, uh, personnel, basically. And that's growing out of control. Uh, Bob Coker is a venture capitalist here. He, he describes it, he says like it, it's it's shock, it's scary and it's not a good thing. Like that healthcare is the largest growing uh, workforce in the US. It's kind of not a good thing because most of it is like you're stacking more and more administrative work on top of every clinical encounter, which has, in some sense, almost nothing to do with actually taking care of somebody. But it's, we've created so much more of this um, bureaucracy, some of which is necessary for tracking, but uh, more ways to streamline and automate that, I think, could have a lot of opportunity. Okay. What should med? Do we have another minute? Um, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. So, because these are just the last couple of questions, is but what should med tech leaders be learning now to be better prepared to, you know, uh, work in this environment? Uh, that's a deep, deep question. <laughs> it's for, for better or worse, it's what actually you always got to know first, especially from a, you know, industry point of view, you got to know what the incentive systems are, what are the policies um, and how payment works for, for better or worse. Um, I like a uh, Leonard Davolio has, he gives a, explains this very well. That you and I, anyways, we could probably come up with five great ideas to um, improve medicine, and they really are great ideas. They really would help people, but ninety-eight percent of the ideas are are completely unusable because there's no business model that will make them sustainable. Um, that describes that you know policy eats you know culture and strategy for breakfast because if the policies aren't in place to incentivize certain behavior, in fact, they often disincentivize things like improving diagnosis. Is something I like to support and have multiple initiatives on, but very ironically, I'm not paid to diagnose you correctly. Does that sound strange? If I get it wrong and you have a complication and need more treatment, 
great. I get to bill you for treating your complication too. It's just very strange things about the way a lot of our systems and structures are incentives are set up. But you have to know what they are so that within that framework, we can still do a lot of good. There is a lot of demand. That's You don't have to make up hype. There is still plenty of very important use cases, but understanding of how that flows uh, back and forth together. So really paying attention. So really paying attention to how your product fits into the ecosystem beyond the just getting a result for a test and being yeah, able to plug yeah. that result in. But maybe how is the person using the device? Then how is that test going to be evaluated? How is it going to be linked to other tests and other decisions? Mm-hmm. You know, go way out from where you are. Um, okay. Any any thoughts on books that people should read or? Uh, podcasts. I, I know like uh, there's a fellow out there in in, uh, in the Bay Area, Eric Topol is a very uh, famous for his work in, in AI and such. Um, he's anything- be almost like a, a medical journalist. He's kind of like summarizing a lot of key, you know, prominent themes. And certainly he's made this one of his um, key topic areas that he also sees as a future of medicine. So he did write a book, I think he called it Deep Medicine, which had mm-hmm. a good summary overview of a lot of what's going on. It's a little bit older, but I actually really like Bob Walker's book. I think it was called The Digital Doctor. And it wasn't necessarily about AI specifically, but we're just seeing all these emerging technologies. And I think had a very grounded perspective on why is it exciting and what does this mean to interact with the existing systems infrastructure of you know modern healthcare. And I thought it had a lot of really great perspectives that are very thoughtful and informed about how we can put things together. Digital Doctor. I'll put a link in that yeah. in the show notes. Um, okay, excellent. Well, this has really been terrific. We've covered a ton of ground. I, I think everybody's been hit with a fire hose. <laughs> this is not a podcast that you speed up. Like there's some podcasts I listen to and I hit the 1.25 or the 1.5 because <laughs> I can get an hour in in 45 minutes or a half hour. Yeah. But this is not one of those, so, which is great. This is great. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. I really appreciate you working with me with your schedule, how busy you are. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. Great. It's a great conversation and uh, look forward to more follow-up. This is a, a, a high demand that's never going to be net. There, there's only more that we got to do. So I'm um, glad to get the discussion going and follow up from there. You got it. I think we should follow up with Jonathan in a year or so to see what he thinks has been accomplished with the utilization of artificial intelligence and healthcare and what he has put together with his colleagues and in his lab. For medtech, I think informatics and artificial intelligence presents a big challenge, especially if you are in something of a commodity market where standardization may be demanded to be sure data from your devices is comparable. How do you prepare to participate in this emerging world? I will be exploring this with a couple guests in the not-too-distant future. But you should start thinking about it now. Remember, Chris Walker of Refine Lab says that the company that knows its customers the best will win in the long run. How well do you really know your customer? And when I say customer, I mean all stakeholders, from the person that orders and stocks the product to the clinician that directs the use of your product, to the professional that assists the clinician, to the person that enters the data results, to the patient upon which your technology is used, and to that patient's family and to the recovery at home. Do you know all of this? If not, it's time to get to work. 
Thanks again for spending time with us today. Now go win your week.